Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see you all. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning. Uh, as I say every week, I really do mean it, though. Thank you for bringing the, the church into uh, this sanctuary. Uh, the church is the people of God gathered to be to worship God, to be sent on the God's mission. And we're going to even look at that theme this morning of what it looks like to participate in all that, that God is doing. So again, just thank you for being here. If you're gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room or wherever you happen to be tuning in from. Uh, and if you're somebody, yeah, it's new to Crosspoint and we've never been introduced. My name is Jamie, uh, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here, and I get to open up God's Word as we get into what is week five of the, this series called Creation and Chaos, Our Origin Story. We are looking at the opening chapters of the Bible, uh, the first 11 chapters, zeroing in in particular and spending kind of a disproportionate amount of time in the first three chapters. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to be kind of in the middle part of chapter two. Uh, but if we understand the origin story with all the beauty, but also the chaos that that ensues, it'll help make sense of our lives, like right here, right now, and the things that, that we're facing, because uh, the Lord has has a great work for us to do, things that we get to participate in, to find joy in. And so I'm gonna read Genesis chapter two. We're gonna be studying together this morning. It's Genesis two, verses four to 17. So I want you to have God's word in, in front of you. You do not need to hear my thoughts, my opinions, my, my take on things. We need to hear from God's word. It's the only perfect thing about this, this day or ever that this service will be God's word, right? Um, and so if you have a Bible, turn there. There are Bibles in the pews in front of you this morning. You can take one of the, uh, open up one of those uh, Bibles there. You can also scan the QR code that's in the pew. Um, and the very first, or sorry, the second thing that shows up on the little menu that pops up um, says sermon notes. And there's space to take notes, but also the text will be there. And so I wanna invite you, if you're able to please stand as I read God's word. Again, this is Genesis 2. We'll be looking at verses four to 17. Hear God's word. These are the generations of the heavens, of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10 a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and it became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth, fourth river is the Euphrates. Verse 15, and the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is God's word. You may be seated. So friends, as we look at this, one of the things that I think we got to point out just to, as we get going is 
if you had the scriptures open, one of the things, probably it's laid out this way in your Bible, is verse four sort of indents it. It's, it's set apart differently. Um, we get really what it's functioning as is a heading. It's sort of like a chapter heading or a section heading because what is just completed here, as we looked at last week, are the first seven days of creation, six days of creation, seventh day of rest. And even though the day of rest, the seventh day was in uh, Genesis chapter two, one to three, that really is one section. And now we're beginning a new section. And as we hear these words read, and as we look at this, perhaps you're wondering if you've been here for part of the series or have some familiarity with Genesis one, it's like, hey, why is it telling this story again? Uh, didn't we hear about the, the creation of humanity? Didn't we hear about some of the work that God had for his people to do? Like what's actually going on here? And are there things here that like, do they contradict one another? What, what's, what's going on? But one of the keys is actually what we see here in, in verse four, this heading, which will be repeated. These are the generations. You see it all through the book of Genesis to kind of mark different sections, all right? And so here we're told, these are the generations and notice the language of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And many scholars will point out a couple of things where it begins and it says the heavens and the earth, there's this, it gets inverted, right? Now it speaks of the earth and the heavens. And maybe that's just a linguistic difference and it doesn't really matter, but it's possible and many scholars point out that chapter one really is this big sweeping sort of overview, all right? In the heavens and the earth. But now the change there is meant to kind of dial us in, to clue us in a bit to like, oh, but now we're looking more specifically, like we're zeroing in, right? It's sort of maybe uh, this image of like the big telephoto lens and we're kind of like zooming in, like, okay, let's look particularly at what was day six in Genesis one and the creation of humanity. What we're gonna see here, what we're looking at here is the creation of Adam. And then next week we'll look at the creation of Eve and the first marriage. But it really is this sort of zooming in, let's focus in on, on this day. Certain new aspects are coming into focus, things that we might not have seen before in Genesis chapter one, but now the author and God himself is telling us, hey, pay attention to this. One of the things too that's listed is it says, the Lord God made. And friends, that's significant because the name of God God has spoken of 35 times in Genesis chapter one, as we talked about briefly last week and this word Elohim. But now in Genesis chapter two, verse four, we're introduced to not just God, but the Lord God. God meaning Elohim and the one who's the creator, he's all powerful, right? And all of that is still true, but now it's paired together with the name, the Lord, all right? Likely in your translation with all capital letters as a way to signify, like this is the covenant name of God, a God who's a covenant maker, a covenant keeper. He's a God who's in relationship. So yes, he's the creator and sustainer, but also he is the God who is near and then he cares and he's ministering to us. And so this morning, what I wanna do is, as we look at these verses, as we sort of zoom in and get a kind of different nuance, different angle to, to things than we've seen before, though there's some, aspects that repeat, there's also this invitation to know and more, more deeply, more profoundly, and kind of new ways to see God's care. And then we're gonna look at how God's care leads to what is our calling and this ultimate sense of completion of this story that God is writing. So if you look with me at God's care, we're gonna look at verses four through 14 and also 16 to 17. 
There's not time to, to dive into every aspect of this, but I wanna call a few things to mind as we just look back over what was read a, a moment ago and to help us understand God's care. We have to start in the most logical place, all right? The place that I'm sure all of you are thinking about, right? We have to start by talking about ditches, dirt, and demons, right? It's just the natural place for all of us to start when we're talking about these things. I'm sure that was on your mind. Maybe you're driving with your kids here this morning. Like, what's gonna be like a church? Dirt, demons, ditches, right? It's just normal stuff. So, but let me unpack this a bit, okay? Because what's taking place here, as we looked at even a couple of weeks ago, is that when this is being written, right? Adam's not writing this. This is many years past him, right? Moses is God's servant writing this. There has been kingdoms like Egypt and Babylon that are on the scene. And with it come all sorts of competing narratives, competing accounts about how the world was created and in particular, how humanity was created. And so a few weeks ago, we looked at some of the the conflict supposedly that, that existed that, that created, all right, this battle between the Babylonian God Marduk and Tiamat and all this stuff. And if you were here for that, you remember it. Some of you are like, I'm trying to block that out. It was very disturbing. I don't, I don't know where you landed on all that, but that sort of idea that there's competing narratives. And if we're gonna understand God's care and our calling, we have to know a bit of other details that were going on in that time and that place, particularly as it pertained to the creation of humanity. And so again, that's where ditches, dirt, and demons come in, all right? And they come in, in in this way. Here's what the Babylonians believed. And it's emerging together of a couple of stories, but but here's kind of the quick summary. You had one level of like the superior gods. They believed there were all these, these gods, all right? They were in control of everything, all right? And then there were lesser gods, all right? So it was like this distinction. There were the varsity level gods and the JV level gods. I don't know how you want to think about it, right? But there was all of these kind of like two realms, and the lower level gods were put to work by the upper level gods. And the lower level gods were getting sick and tired of it. And the lower level gods rallied together and they do what people do when they sometimes get frustrated about the work that they're doing. They decide to go on strike. This is a very ancient practice, okay? Um, and so they are threatening to go on strike. And the thing that they're frustrated about is that the upper level gods had told them, had relegated them to a certain level of work. They were to be about, to bring about irrigation to the land, they had to dig ditches. Now, if you've ever spent any time digging a ditch or doing that sort of back-breaking work, you know, this is tiring. And the lower level gods, according to this Babylonian story, were like, we're done. Like, nope, no more, we're not gonna do it. And so the upper level gods figured out a way. They're like, okay, maybe we should pay attention. We don't want this revolt to be on our hands, all right? So that's the ditches that are taking place. They decide, okay, we're gonna fashion this new species. We're gonna fashion some workers that can dig the irrigation ditches for us. And so in a combination of dirt or clay, all right, mixed with the blood of a demon God that was killed, all right, they began to form humanity, all right? And just to top it all off as the blood and the, the, the demon blood and the dirt were being mixed together in clay and fashioning and shaping it, all the gods gathered together and they all spit upon it. They, they threw their contribution into the mix just to, to add to it all. And out of that poof emerged you and me, right? That, like that's the, the story. And that's what they would tell their, their children, right? Like this is how you came about, right? now. In that, you can see some things right away that's like, oh man, that's a bit of a bummer. Like that's our story. That's our origin story. Like that's where we came from. We're just here to do the labor that the gods don't wanna do. Work is viewed 
I mean, you can understand this, right? Like it's punishment. Like I got to go dig ditches like forever. Like that's how the earth is going to get watered. Now it's in that context that Genesis 2, 4 to 17 emerges. So let's look now at that with sort of that lens, that understanding of like, oh, this is being said over and against that popular belief. And so when we get to verse five, it speaks of no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. It's telling us that everything is like wild, uninhabitable, it's just this vast wilderness. And there's a bit of an issue, like there's no man to work the ground, which can sound at one level, like it's getting set up for like, yeah, we're gonna make the humans do the work. But the way our God views things, it's not about punishment. We see an invitation from our God, as we'll get further into this, to do the same type of work that he was doing. Certainly not exactly the same, but to, to participate in it, to join with him. There's no man to work the ground. So how is this going to get solved. And verse seven says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Do you, do you see the care here of God? God cares for his creation. He's like, there's no one to, there's no one to, to care for. There's just this wildness. So no, there's no one to work it. So he cares for creation. He's putting a plan together. And then he begins to, it says he formed the man of dust from the ground. And there's a play on words that, that we miss in our English translation, um, but the, the man of dust, it's like he's forming Adam from the ground, the Adama, right? And so at one level, we see God's intentionality in forming Adam, the original human, and it's not out of conflict. He's not creating Adam because there's all this work that God doesn't wanna mess with. And he's like, oh, I need somebody to do this work. No, there's, there's a care. There, it's not the blood of a demon guy, but it's God fashioning. The language here is in the way a potter fashions the clay. And so there's this sculpting, there's this putting together, there's an attention to detail. And then God himself who breathes life. It's not from the blood of a demon, but rather it's just this care from our God, from the Lord God. And so what we have here in this, even Adam which would have been fascinating, right? Like anytime Eve called his name or his kids, right? It was this, this reminder that, oh, I've come from the ground. And so it should foster and cultivate a sense of humility. It's not demeaning, but it's, it's a reminder like, oh, like I'm not the creator. I am part of the creation. And yet I'm the only one that's called the image of God. I'm made in the image and likeness of God as Genesis 1 told us. And I'm the only creature that was spoken as being very good. And I'm the only one that God himself breathed life into. God made all the animals and we'll see how Adam names them next week as we look at that portion of Genesis chapter two. But right now, this is a revolutionary way. Like you're thinking about like, who am I? Who, are, who is humanity? Who are we in the world? What is God calling us to? It's like, oh no, God formed you. You're not the result of conflict. You're not there to do work sort of as like a, a punishment, all right? Like in this punitive sort of sense of like, well, you gotta, gotta do that. No, no, like we're made to participate with God and he creates humanity. And then verse eight tells us, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the East and there he put the man whom he had formed. So a reminder again, like the Lord has formed this man. He has formed Adam from the Adama. 
And there he is full of worth and value and dignity. And he is strategically placed, it says, in the garden of Eden, planted a garden in Eden, which is telling us a couple of things. That Eden is this region and in it, there's a garden. And in that place, all right, God has taken the raw materials of the world and all of this stuff that can be chaotic and he's begun to form it to make something that could be inhabited by humanity, a place where life could flourish, where, where joy and beauty and all these things could be cultivated. That's what's going on here. And so he plants a garden in Eden. As we look at our calling, verse eight will be very strategic in us understanding what we're called to do. And then verse nine, and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're gonna get into that. This is just like a little foreshadowing here, like Genesis three is coming. Something's gonna happen with these trees. It's not gonna go well, right? Like we, we know this, but for now, pay attention to what's highlighted there. The Lord God made to spring up. So God, all right, is saying, I'm involved. I'm not distant. Like I care for you. I didn't just fashion Adam and say, hey, you're on your own, bud. Like go figure out dinner. But rather he caused the trees to grow up and he provides food for him, all right? It was good for food. There's all of this stuff to partake in. But do you notice this detail as well? That our God is not just a God who is, cares only about the functional utilitarian sort of purposes, right? Yes, there's food for nourishment. Praise God for that but there's a detail that's given that gives us a glimpse into the nature and character of our God. Because he doesn't just say, well, here's, here's some food, all right? And like, don't complain. You just better eat it and finish what's on your plate, right? But rather he tells us this, like it's also pleasant to the sight that there's something about this food as Adam would look, it's like, oh, he's marveling at it. Like there's a beauty about things that God doesn't just care about things functioning well, that that's true, but he also cares about the artistry. He cares about the design, right? Like think about something that like you might enjoy. Maybe you're in, into cars, right? Um, and you're like, yeah, I can have a car that'll take me from point A to point B. And for many of us, that's like all we're into or all we can afford, depending, right? Like, but there's also those moments where you're like, your head kind of turns like, whoa, because there's like a beauty. Yeah, that thing still can get from point A to point B, but it does so like with like, oh my goodness, like look at that thing. It's not my truck, by the way. But anyway, um, like you see, like there's God caring about these things. It speaks of, oh my goodness, like he's a designer, he's an artist. And he's inviting us into a particular work that God cares about creativity. God cares about us joining him and causing things to flourish that other people might marvel and say, look at that, that's beautiful. And not so that it would terminate at sort of like giving the artist praise, but rather would point to the grand artist that is King Jesus himself. And then verses 10 to 14, I won't read all of these, but it's a little bit of a odd section unless we understand the context where this is written, that it's countering some of these Babylonian myths. And so from verses 10 to 14, it's kind of like he's laying all this stuff out. And then it says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided. So there's one river and it became four rivers and the name of the first. And it just goes on to, to name these places. And obviously people have tried to, to use those details to be like, oh, where's the garden of Eden? We can find it, right? Because we know where the Euphrates is and we know where the Tigris is. But 
We're not exactly sure of these other two rivers and some of the land. Apparently there's gold there. It even makes a distinction like it's the good gold. I didn't know there was bad gold, but apparently there's good gold and bad gold. I don't know. Um, I thought it was all good, but like it makes this distinction. It's laying this out. Again, it's telling us about this land that's filled with the, this gold and these jewels. Like there's this beauty here. God cares about these things. And it says a river flowed out of Eden. And so think about the story. What were, the, what were humans put on the earth to do according to the Babylonian story? Dig the ditches, the irrigation ditches. That's how the earth's gonna get watered. And God is saying, no, 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 no. I've got the water. I'm taking care of it. There's work for the humans to do, certainly. But I'm not doing this as some sort of like punishment or like, oh, you gotta, go, you gotta do this, this sort of work now. God is reminding us like, hey, I'm watering it. I'm taking care of it. And it also calls to mind that something we don't have time to get into all of this, but friends, this is loaded with significance because it's speaking of water flowing out from this place, from the garden, which means it's a high place. And the high places in the ancient times were the holy places. It's the place where, where there was kind of this thin space where like God and humanity would dwell together. And so we're told that there's this hill and out of it flows this, this water, this river that's watering everything and bringing life and bringing flourishing. And we're told there in the center of that, there's these particular trees. It's describing a sanctuary. It's describing a temple. In fact, the tabernacle and temple would be mimicked to follow sort of the Eden pattern. And there's all these things that would have been like little lights going off on the dashboard for the original audience to be like, oh, like the temple is Eden. And then when we fast forward and we now have the whole story and we read like Revelation 21 and 22, like go read Revelation 22, one to seven. And you'll see like, it's this scene, but it's no longer just a garden. It's been made into a city and it's coming down out of heaven. And there's this river that flows and it causes this flourishing that's never ending. It's like, oh, this is what we get to participate in. Like there's this great and great, grand narrative. This is just know that what's happening here as we talk about our work and our calling in a moment is there's this calling to make everything more like this Eden, like this temple, this place where the presence of God would dwell. And then God in his care and compassion too, he also speaks a word. It's not a word that he gives to any other creature. He gives it specifically to Adam and to Eve. And he tells them in verse 16, the Lord commanded the man saying, you may, sh you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Like, it's all for you, man. Like, there it is. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from the day that you eat of it. You shall surely die. And that's just kind of hyperlinking us over to Genesis 3, which we'll be in in a couple of weeks. But see this, even that warning, God is saying, I want you to experience freedom and flourishing. And freedom is found when you live within the boundaries of God's good and beautiful and perfect design and to transgress those boundaries moves you and I into the place of chaos where there isn't flourishing. It pushes us away from the presence of God. And so even God's care, as we kind of just do this quick overview, do you, do you see everything that's emerging in this scene is countering the, the, the dominant narrative of that time, that humanity was nothing more than simply there for utilitarian purposes. And when you no longer serve your purpose, you're just discarded. You dig the ditches, you'll make the gods happy. You do that, but you've got no worth. You've got no value. You've got no dignity. There's nothing about who you are that, that speaks of anything valuable. And then the story bursts forth in the midst of that one. and said, no, 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 our God created us. He breathed life into us and he's got good work for us to do, which gets us into verse 15 that you and I have a high and holy calling. 
Verse 15 has come to be regarded as the cultural mandate. And there's aspects of this that we looked at a, a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 1, but here's just another angle on it. And friends, it means that you and I are people that were made to work and to understand our work. And if you're thinking for a moment, like, does that mean I have to do work that involves a paycheck? It can include that, but it's not limited to that. All of us are gonna spend a lot of time and energy if we're faithful to the Lord, working in ways that we're never compensated for. Maybe you'll get compensated for something. Sure, that's great, that's wonderful. You need some compensation to live off, I get that. But this is talking about something bigger, that the way we, part of the way, part of God's care for us, that we experience just meaning and purpose is we are called to work. We are called to, to keep, we're called to expand as we'll look at in a moment, this world that God has given to us. But if we jump back for a moment, what informs our work is what we see. And we looked at this a moment ago in verse eight, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So again, large region, all right? I think we have a tendency, at least I did growing up, to think all the world is like Eden. No, no, no. Not all the world was like Eden. There was a part of the world called Eden. And in that, there was a particular garden that God had made, all right? And that's where he put the man. And so the Lord has done a particular work. He's taken what was wild, this vast wilderness that was not inhabitable and he's fashioned it and he's formed it. Tim Keller in a study on Genesis said it this way. He says, the essence then of God's work is to rearrange and reorder raw material. So it brings out new products for human flourishing, for human welfare, for human well-being. If you actually think about it, all work, he says, is like that. All work is gardening. It's the archetypal job. So we need to unpack that a bit. That's what verse eight is telling us. Like, oh, God shows up here and he, he creates a garden. So the archetype, right? is like, oh, God is a gardener and you're made in his image and likeness and I'm made in his image and likeness. And so that tells us something then when we get to verse 15, where it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. So he's placed there to what? To work it and to keep it, that there's this calling of working and keeping, which we'll unpack a bit more in a moment. But at a high level, it's telling us like, oh, if God's a gardener, so is Adam. And so is every single person made in the image and likeness of God. Now, at one level that could freak some of you out as it does, it could freak me out to be like any green plant that I've ever touched, like I basically kill off, right? Um, and so if you're thinking like, well, this isn't going so well for me, um, we need to expand our view of what it means to garden. It's that definition we read a moment ago from Tim Keller. It's taking the raw materials and you're beginning to reorder and rearrange and, and you're bringing things out. And this can happen in a number of different ways. But for our orig the original person, Adam, right? He was told, all right, you've been placed here. You didn't make the Garden of Eden, but now you're to go, all right? And you're to work it and you're to keep it. So at one level, you're to protect it, but you're also to expand it. You're gonna move into the places of chaos and bring out order. You're gonna begin to make things more like the Garden of Eden. Like that is actually the prototype. And friends, that calling has not stopped. And so I don't know the particulars of what your upcoming week looks like, looks like, but I know this, there are things that are on your calendar that you've got planned. And there are the things that you don't have any idea that are coming yet, right? Um, those are the things that keep us up at night. Like, oh. There's likely some level of chaos. And what does it look like for us to bring order and beauty and harmony into those places? 
that it's not an accident that God has put you in the family he's put you, in the school he's put you, in the workplace he's put you, in the neighborhood that he's put you. You are there to help bring order and beauty out of the chaos. And every job that you do, what would it look like if you thought of yourself as a gardener, taking the raw materials and begin to fashion and form something that can, that can bless other people? And so some of you just take in lots and lots of information. That's the raw material and you produce something. Maybe you, maybe you write something or you publish something, right? You do something to help make sense of things so that the rest of us can understand it and know it's a, your blessing, right? Some of you are incredible with like working with the actual like raw materials, like working with your, your hands. And so you're building things. You're building things for in the home or you're, you're building, you know, you're actually building homes or you're any of those things. Some of you are entrepreneurs and you're taking like I, the raw material of, of ideas and capital, different resources, and you're helping to start businesses in ways that would bless the community and begin to hire people to do those things. Some of you are spending most of your time, right? Trying to do gardening in the home, meaning the raw materials, all the things that are there and where it feels a lot like chaos. And sometimes the little resources are running around and they're called children, right? And like all of, all of that, you're trying to cultivate that. You're just trying to bring some order and beauty and flourishing. Like it's this gardening work, right? Some of you are fashioning stories. Some of you are gifted artists and you're taking the raw material, right? All of these things, like if you play this out and you think about it enough and do some of that hard work, I think at every level you find like, oh yeah. If you're like, I'm in, you know, involved in like in some investment banking. Like there's all these ways where you're, you're taking information, you're taking knowledge, you're taking these stuff, help fashion it to invest, you're doing something. And so you have all of these opportunities before us, if we would think that way. And so the question becomes, will you and I help cultivate order and beauty out of the chaos? For instance, there's no lack of chaos, but be encouraged that the God of the universe, before time began, right? He had a plan for Adam as the first human, all that, right? But he also had a plan for like you to live in this time and in this place with all that's happening in the world and not just you as an isolated individual, but us together as the church. So it's a question of like, yeah, will you help cultivate? But it's also, will we together help cultivate order out of the chaos? What would it look like for the church to do the good work that we're called to? And listen, we know the story, like in Genesis three, after the fall, after sin enters, right? Like the ground is cursed and there's thorns and thistles. Like work can be a grind. Maybe it's gonna feel more like, do you know that the myth of Sisyphus? Do you know, you know this? Maybe you've heard that this story, this, this one who was cursed, all right? By one of the gods to literally just like, well, here's your job. Push the boulder up the hill, all right? Best of luck with that. And so he does, according to the story. And right when he gets to the top, when he can put the boulder at rest, it slips and it rolls back down the hill. And so he pushes it up again, only to get to the top to find it come rolling back down. And he just does this for forever. And some of you are like, yes, welcome to my Monday, right? Like that's what it can feel like, where it's just sort of this, this grind. It's like, is this all there is? And maybe things that don't feel like they're ever going to be completed but it doesn't change the fact that even in the midst of work, yes, there's aspects of it that are cursed. Your work is holy. It is loaded with significance when you and I operate as the gardeners that we're called to be, that everything that we're involved in matters to God and everything matters right here, right now, but it also matters. It has the potentiality to matter forever. And the only way it's, we're gonna see that and experience that is when we realize 
that our work, yes, is incomplete. And our work can leave us as we looked at last week, like, man, we don't rest well because we think it's up to us and we keep going. And we think we're the God of the universe and I can't possibly take a day off. And we trust, no, the God who is the original gardener. And we trust the one who is keeping the world spinning. And we're invited to live according to the rhythm of the universe that he has designed. And yes, we've got work to do, but we do it from a place of rest. We rest in the finished work of Jesus. And so friends, I wanna encourage you in that as we think about this and this calling, let's remember the completion. Remember how Jesus offered up a prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer in John 17 as he's nearing this final moments on this earth. And he's thinking about all that he's come to do. And he's thinking about all the ways that he has lived a sinless life, all the ways that he has welcomed the outcast, the way that he has loved people faithfully, the ways that he has brought healing through his words and through his actions. He reflects on this in John 17, he says, Father, the hour, and that's John's way of saying the cross. That's what it's referring to. The hour has come to glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ to whom you have sent. That's how you find rest. The only way you can do the work that you're called to is if you would rest and know this is eternal life. And then Jesus says this, but the completed work, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Well, what was the work that he was given to do? To live a sinless life and to go and die a death that he did not deserve, but that I deserve and that you deserve because we couldn't do our work correctly, that we rebelled against God, that we took the fruit from the tree. We said, we wanna take matters into our own hands. All of that, Jesus's work was for him to drink the cup fully of God's wrath, a cup that I should drink and you should drink and said, he drinks it. And all of our sin is put on him there on the cross. In all of his righteousness, that we didn't earn is graciously bestowed upon those who've trusted in the finished work of Jesus. And from that place then, where we rest in what Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. We realize that, oh, now we can do our work because we don't have anything to prove. Jesus has accomplished it all. And then one of the great lines of the scriptures that is not there by accident at all, with so much intentionality and beauty is that there in John 17, Jesus says, I've completed the work, right? And then in John 19, Jesus says it is finished. And then he dies and he's put into a tomb. And three days later, Mary shows up at the tomb and she notices that it's empty. Peter and John run there and they confirm that. And then they run off and she's left there. And she's just like, what is going on? Like what in the world has happened? Like this was our hope. This is what we thought, like the story was heading and now it's all been disrupted and destroyed seemingly. And she's so discouraged and distraught. And then with an intentionality that only the master storyteller that is God could weave in, knowing that Adam was called to be a gardener like God was and who had failed in a garden. There on this Easter Sunday morning, Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And then we get insight in what's running through her mind at that moment, supposing him to be the gardener. There's no way that's by accident. That's not just some random little detail like, oh, Mary seemingly confused. No, 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 no. This is meant to connect all of the dots that the first Adam where he failed in the garden, now the second Adam has shown up 
And he was faithful in a garden called Gethsemane, praying to the Lord, may this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And in the reality of Eden, and we talked about like being up on that hill, Jesus went up another hill. And there he was crucified. And on a ground that produced thorns and thistles, a crown of thorns was put on his head and he suffered and died. And then on this glorious Easter morning, new life burst forth. There's new creation that's happening. It's John's way of signaling the garden work hasn't stopped yet. The gardener is back on the scene and he's inviting all of us to participate in this work of renewal. And yes, Jesus is one day gonna split the sky and he's gonna come back and he's gonna set everything right. But until that time, we have good work to do and your work matters. So don't stop dreaming about what God might want to do in and through you. Don't think, well, I don't get paid for this or maybe I don't, maybe I should do that. Like, no, the Lord has gifted you in particular ways and you're not where you are by accident. And so I'll close with this. It's a story that I've ran across years ago in Tim Keller's work, Every Good Endeavor, which is an amazing book. And in the introduction to that book, he references J.R.R. Tolkien, um, who wrote many things, one of which was The Lord of the Rings. And one of the things that's so encouraging is that obviously, right, was a masterpiece. Don't argue with me about it, okay? And that's a work, man. I mean, like that, like, I mean, that's a lot of words. That's a lot of writing. And and he's like making up whole histories and languages and and, there was this moment apparently for Tolkien where he was, he was becoming so discouraged because the view in his mind was ever expanding. As he thought about the different worlds and the different kingdoms and different Elvish language, I mean, all, all this stuff, right? I mean, just like nerddom upon nerddom, right? I mean, just like he's all into it and I love it. But he's just thinking of all that. And he got to this point where he's like, I don't know if what's in my mind is ever actually gonna result in something that's just not garbage, like he was kind of partway through writing the Lord of the Rings and he's just like, I don't know. Is anyone gonna read this? This is basically trash. That's how he was feeling about it. And I find some encouragement in that, right? Maybe you do as well. That sometimes those things that you feel called, you're like, is this any good, right? It's called my Saturday night every week, right? Um, and, and so don't answer that question anyway. But, um, but like, he's just wondering, he's got these insecurities and all of the, these things that, that are going on. And so he penned a short story just to kind of process all that he was dealing with, right? And it got published in a local publication there in Britain, right? And it became known as the short story that's called Leaf by Niggle, all right? And it really was this very brief kind of autobiographical sketch. It's a bit into the, the mind and the psyche of J.R.R. Tolkien, as he's midway through the Lord of the Rings and he's wondering, is this just a bunch of nonsense? Is this garbage? Is this any good? Will anybody ever read this? And here's the story. Nigel is an artist who has a vision of creating a masterpiece, a master work of art composed of a beautiful, not only trees, but trees that, a particular tree that would lead to an entire forest, an entire landscape, but because he would get so hyper-focused, he literally just spent all his time, and that, that's where this word niggle comes from, apparently. It's not a word I use, but, but he like, it's this way to identify like, hey, he's just kind of dabbling in. When he would get time, he kind of fiddle with like creating the perfect leaf. And he was so consumed by creating this perfect tree and he had this canvas. He literally was like, it was expanding. Like back in his workshop, it was like he was adding more and more to it. And yet all he was seen to do functionally was work on this leaf. And he would get distracted because his neighbors asked him for help all the time. And he'd be like, sure, I can help you. And I would do these sort of things. And so here's this artist 
who's trying to do this work and he has this masterpiece in his mind, but functionally he's got a leaf to show for it. And he also has this sense that one day there's gonna be this journey he's gonna have to go on. And it's Tolkien's way of writing in there the story that we're all gonna die. And he views it as a train. And then one day the train comes for him and Niggle is found in the story to just yell out like, no, I'm not done. Like the canvas is basically empty and there's just this little bit that I've done. And there he gets put on the train and as people find his work back in his kind of like artist like shed that he has out, out back, they see this little leaf and it's put up in a local museum. And every now and again, a few people will go visit it, but basically it's unknown. But as he's riding this train in what we know to be the afterlife, he's led off of the train and he looks out. And in this beautiful landscape, there's the tree. And it's the tree that was always in his mind. And here's how Tolkien describes it. Before him stood the tree, his tree finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Nigel had so often felt or guessed and yet had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree and slowly he lifted his arms and he opened them wide. And it's a gift, he said. He's marveling at the thing that only had existed in his mind and he had contributed a leaf, but there it was. And Keller commenting on this says, friends, your work and my work matters. And yeah, the canvas might be expanding. And yes, there might be things that are like, I wanna do this, and I wanna do this. And, I wanna, and like, we don't know if it's all ever gonna be complete, but know this, Jesus completed the work and you're part of this story now. New heavens and new earth. What started in a garden is going to be a city and Jesus is gonna wipe away every tear. And guess what? Your work though, it matters. And your work can have lasting impact. And Keller, it says this, if the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. So whatever your work, you need to know this, there really is a tree. And whatever you're seeking in your work, the city of justice and peace, the world of brilliance and beauty, the story, the order, the healing, it is there. There is a God, there is a future healed world that he will bring about and your work is showing it in part to others. Your work will be only partially successful on your best days in bringing that world about. But hear this, but inevitably the whole tree that you seek the beauty, harmony, justice, comfort, joy, and community will come to fruition. If you know all this, you won't be despondent because you can only get a leaf or two out in this life. You will work with satisfaction and joy. You will not be puffed up by success or devastated by setbacks. So may you and I be a community that does the work the Lord has given to us knowing that Jesus is ultimately accomplished. We do our work not to prove anything. We do it from a deep rest in the gospel, but we're invited to play. We're invited to participate. We get to help bring order and beauty and harmony out of the chaos. What would it look like for us as the church to use our gifts, to glorify God, to serve the good of our neighbor and to experience just this deep gladness and joy? Like friends, that's what we're made for. So as we prepare in a moment to come to this table, we're reminded of the finished work of Jesus. May we be encouraged in whatever the work is, whatever the specifics are in your life, know that there's a God that is walking alongside you. There's a God that cares deeply and that your work matters. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this text. Thank you for this 
ancient, ancient text that speaks so relevantly to today. And so God, would you encourage us in the work that you've given to us to do? We thank you that the ultimate work was done by Jesus. We thank you that the pressure is off. We thank you that there's nothing we have to prove. Thank you that we get to rest in the finished work of Jesus. And may that free us up then to be agents of reconciliation, of healing in a a broken and fractured and dark and disordered world. Thank you, Jesus, for making us part of your family. Thank you for building your church that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Use us, Lord, to be conduits of your grace and your mercy. Would you do it for your glory? For our joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.